0: just a heads up about this episode we originally recorded it um, with the intent of it being a normal episode but the conversation went on longer than usual so that combined with the fact that i am defending my thesis next month and probably won't have time to edit and record a podcast episode led to the decision to split this into two episodes so you'll hear here in the beginning the three papers that we read uh, this episode will cut off after the conversation about the first and then the next two papers will be discussed on next month's episode enjoy <laughs> Welcome to Unsupervised Thinking, a podcast on neuroscience, artificial intelligence, and science more broadly. We are a group of computational neuroscientists. I'm Grace.
1: I'm Connor. And I'm Josh.
0: And the topic for this episode is the concept of coding in neuroscience. So we'll talk about ideas like what is the neural code of the brain, and um, what does it mean for neurons to be encoding information about stimuli and that kind of thing?
1: Maybe even if that's a relevant question. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So this is—it's kind of a big and fuzzy topic, but it's—it's it's also very core, I think, to how we think about the brain, especially as like computational style people.
2: Tells um, you something about the state of neuroscience. <laughs> the core concept is also big
0: and <laughs> <laughs> fuzzy. Yep. Uh, yeah so we're kind of going to try to talk about we read something that's pretty historical like one of the earlier documents of people talking about the idea of coding and then we also read stuff um, that's more about the current state of ideas and some philosophy about how relevant coding is as a metaphor and so for this actually usually when we are doing a topic I just try to dig up papers that seem relevant, but I decided to outsource that job to Twitter. And I just asked on Twitter for papers um, about coding and the idea of coding in neuroscience. And there were a lot of people who responded, um, which suggests that I should never do work myself and just uh, ask other people to do it for me. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> So I'll probably link to that like thread of responses because there's a lot more there than what we're actually reading. Um, but let me just Uh, specifically say what we're reading and uh, credit the people who recommended it. So for the history of things, we're reading this report. So there used to be these, um, there's something called the Neuroscience Research Program that was started in uh, 1962, and it was held in Boston. And I think it was twice weekly, they had regular seminars. And then they also had, I think they said six times a year, there was like a mini conference to talk about something specific. And so one of those conferences was about neural coding, and it was in 1968. And then there was like a report written about that conference. And so that report was written by Donald Perkle and Theodore Bullock. And that uh, the the fact that these things existed and there were these um, progress reports about these conferences was... uh, told to me by Venkat Ramaswamy. So uh, thanks to him. And then the um, kind of paper that we read to summarize the current state of uh, coding research and evidence for different types of coding is called Neural Representation and Cortical Code by DeCharms and Zader from 2000. And that was recommended by Peter Zatka Haas. And then we also read, um, a piece that's on bioarchive that just came out a few months ago so it was in july of 2017 and it's called is coding a relevant metaphor for the brain by romaine brett and um that was something that i had heard of before but was also uh recommended by a twitter account called sci-fi so yeah so um Looking, uh, I guess we should start with the history, I suppose. Oh, there was one other thing. Um, A lot of people recommended the book Spikes, which as like a general, like the whole book is kind of a good introduction to the idea of coding and the philosophy of coding and uh, the experimental support for ideas behind it.
1: It's like an introductory computational neuroscience textbook that many people in the field have read.
0: Yeah. And I would say that uh, that is a good resource, but I knew that we weren't going to read a whole book for... This episode. So that's why I didn't recommend it. Um, but it's it's a nice presentation of the material for anyone who's interested. So, yeah. So, history. Um, yeah. So, this thing written in the 60s, this uh, report from a conference, um, is on the early end of people explicitly talking about coding. But a lot of the groundwork for the ideas came from earlier electrophysiology in neuroscience where kind of like the basic principles of what neurons could possibly be doing is laid out and so in the 1830s there was johannes muller who uh, came up with this idea of specific nerve energies which is that it's basically what he realized is that you can electrically stimulate different nerves and they can all respond to the same electrical stimulation, like if you like put in an electrode and, and make a, a nerve fiber fire. But depending on which one you stimulate, you get a different perceptual response. So the idea that if you stimulate cells in the retina, you get a visual response versus if you stimulate cells on the skin, you get like a touch response, or a touch perception or something. That was accredited to, to this guy in the early 1800s. Um, which is like very obviously something that we take for granted now. (laughs) But all of the basic things had to be discovered at some point. Uh, And then the next big guy is Edgar Adrian, who won the Nobel Prize in 1932. Um, And he really kind of discovered some of the basic principles of neuroscience. He basically is responsible for the idea that action potentials are all or none. So if the cell is firing it fires this, it has this um, shape of the membrane potential that happens kind of regardless of uh, the the strength of the input, the shape of this one thing is the same. But then he realized that the thing that varies based on kind of the stimulus that's presented is how many of these individual units happen. So spikes are just one kind of thing. They don't vary that much uh, within themselves, but the number of spikes that the neuron produces in response to a stimulus varies depending on what the stimulus is like.
1: And I guess, hypothetically, we'll get into this, but other properties like the timing between spikes or things like this also may have sort of information related to what's going on in the stimulus. Yeah, so yeah, it's
0: interesting because it is one of the earliest kind of discussions of coding, and it does assume what is called a a rate-based code. So I think the quote that this guy had is... um, if impulses are crowded together, the sensation is intense. If separated by long intervals, it's correspondingly feeble. And that's,
1: yeah. That's, that's cool.
0: That's rate coding, in a way. <laughs>
1: Which just means, I mean, now we just take it for granted, yeah, that there are more spikes when something is of stronger intensity. I mean, that's, like, common in some systems. It's not always the case. It could be that, like, the, there's a decrease in, I mean, now we know, like, maybe in some situations there's a baseline firing rate of how many action potentials there are per second. And that decreases when something is, you know, stronger or something like this. I mean, it, it, so much of this varies by particular system. Yeah,
0: um, But this was done in stretch receptors on the skin. So it was done in like with a specific system. A specific mine, system but where that's, yeah, we... Yeah, but yeah. I think the idea was meant to be general. Um, yeah, so that, I guess, kind of brings us to this uh, report that we read from the 60s, where they lay out the thinking of the people at this meeting um, and kind of definitions of what a neural code could be and how to study it.
2: Yeah, I think it's worth just mentioning that, you know, so actually this was an amazing, I thought this was a really cool paper. It's a report right from a conference in 1968. And one of the things that we'll hopefully will become clear as we talk, keep talking about it, is that, like, as we talk about this and especially then as we talk about later papers, um, Bearing in mind that this first paper was written in 1968, is that they go through so much of the kind of phil- philis- they hit on so many of the kind of philosophical issues already in this in the introduction to this paper, and then they end up hitting on lots of the lots of kind of in some cases speculatively um, about the kind different kinds of coding and what different uses of the word code um, in different systems um, already in this paper. And we still kind of, I think people still are engaged in lots of the similar debates today and similar kind of problems still exist. So that was quite striking. I mean, obviously, there's been loads of progress of certain kinds, lots of accumulation of experimental evidence. And like there are more examples that you can refer to that they wouldn't have had available to them. But I thought that was pretty striking. And then a related thing is just that we should mention at the beginning, you know, because there's a kind of a question that's obvious, which is like, what do we mean by code? And I think the introductory, they start their introduction of the, to this um, paper with it kind of addressing exactly that question, um, and it's I just think their general gloss on it is useful. They don't commit themselves very very strongly to a particular use of the word code. Um, the, the the place where they get most clear is in this section that comes a little bit later on in the introduction, where they lay out these four um, four kind of components of. of of processes that involve codes but they talk about you know different uses of the word code like in cryptology where you're encoding something you're taking a message and kind of transforming it into a message using different symbols that is harder to interpret or something for to achieve some kind of secrecy Um, they talk about information theory Um, then there's a there's a they talk they go through a lot of other a few other kind of technological examples and they finally settle on this. Uh, they make this statement, which I, think, which I think is worth reading out, which is just, the, they say the appropriateness and sense of the term code for transformations in the nervous system derives less from the discrete substitute of technological usage than from the broader meanings in common English. One, for example, is a system of principles or rules of behavior relevant to a certain context, whether of physician's gentlemen, outlaws or nerve cells. Another is a system of understood signals, whether by smoke, drums, whistles, flags, lights are the means for mechanically conveying information between separable points. So, I don't know, I just thought it was it's worth saying that they're kind of, yeah, they're acknowledging the messiness of the term and the kind of oh, most important kind of, k- kind of themes that are in the background are these themes of like representation of information in different ways and then kind of transporting that information and then somehow... Using the information, like I think, yeah, just
1: so yeah, a lot of it is about. Commu- I mean, there's a, there's, a, I mean, they're they're generic in the sense, but they also are, are in some ways specific. Discussing like communication systems, which I think in it, in the sort of historical context makes sense because like that was the technology that was like very well understood in the time when this was written, would have been like communication transmission systems, and so so much of the way they talk about it is less about I mean they talk about the transformations that are performed but so much of it is like there's a channel and they want to know what kinds of representations the nervous system uses to communicate information from one subpart of the nervous system to another part of the nervous system. So that that is about what is the language in which things are communicated along physical substrates.
0: Yeah, but and that framing of it is very relevant because it does then assume that you are mostly just transmitting a message, and so that you would want yeah. the, the readout area to be able to just read out the information that was already present at the area before, when in reality, we believe that the brain is not just sending along the same information all to different areas all over the brain, but it's actually transforming the information, and that's a really relevant part of the process. And it does seem like earlier um, discussions of coding, and even current discussions of coding, do assume um, mostly just being able to read out what was inputted.
1: Well, so they they do say in this, like, that's kind of like like my sort of semi-naive feeling about the paper as well, but they do have comments that I think reveal that they were thinking about this in a way that's deeper. They say something like, the interpretation of the encoded information typically consists of its recording... Uh, recoding by a higher order set of neurons or it's decoding by an effector. So for, so first of all they're acknowledging that the higher order neurons are reinterpreting and changing the information in what they receive and they say or it's decoding by an effector. So they're acknowledging that the only thing that would be forming like what we consider decoding would be like the, the motor outputs. So like if, if you see something and you think I want to pick up that glass, decoding of seeing the glass is producing a sequence of actions which allows you to pick up the glass. So that that is like it isn't decoding in the sense like it, that's that's a dramatic re-representation. It's like a sort of intentional re-representation towards an action by which you can affect your environment. And they also say that. Like this, this this encoding, uh, this interpretation of the encoded information corresponds largely to integration as ordinarily understood in neurophysiology. So, like, we still use this language now when talking about systems that they integrate, uh, they integrate information from their inputs, and they were saying then that like, you know, essentially decisions are or decisions about what actions to take are performed as the integration of uh, of encoded information from from from. Earlier regions, whatever that is.
2: Yeah, I think it's interesting. You know, there's always this tension when you use metaphors to think about anything, I think, like, especially in science. Um, and they talk about this repeatedly as a metaphor, right? So, I mean, they're explicit about the fact that this is a metaphor. And it's, I suppose, the idea is that metaphors are supposed to structure and guide your thinking and give you clues and make certain, you know, types of formulating certain types of, like, ideas um, easier. Um, but yeah, there's this tension, which is that on the one hand, you kind of know it's a metaphor and you're explicit about that um, and that's that's kind of a caution, there's a caution involved but then on the other hand, it's like, for it to be most kind of useful, it's kind of a bias variance thing somehow, right, but for it to be most kind of, for it to be most useful, you kind of have to really commit to it and then that does just like structure the way you think a lot and, so, and there are places where mm-hmm. that seems really yeah. right, like at the sensory periphery, the committed version of the metaphor works kind of but
1: like, we are, like, the sensory periphery literally has neurons which, like, encode the information, hopefully with, I mean, not hopefully, but, like, we believe in some systems with very little loss. Right. Uh, like, very, like it, they encode, like, the full information of a, of, of a certain component of a stimulus or right, something right. like that. And then you go through the um,
2: system and it's kind of like, you know, you're trying to keep track of, like, how committed should you remain to the metaphor? And then, like, the example that yeah, you gave of, like... Point. If you, you know, you, you took it kind of literally there when you spelled it out. You say, like, you could interpret, if you take this literally, you could interpret, like, me picking up a glass as a kind of a decoding of a transformed... I mean, this is their language yeah, yeah. as well. They, they say that right, exclusively. Right. As a transformed version of, like, the... As, as, as the kind of... The, as the readout of, like, a... Of, of a communication process that communicates, like, the presence of the glass and the whole context of my... Beha- of, of me and the root and the room or whatever into like I mean, an act or something. And, and then, and then that starts to feel strained. Right. But it, but it's also not completely. Yeah. You see my point. I guess
1: it is. It's, it's strange, but it is something that like is formal and exists currently as an idea in the existing literature that you can create information channels between, uh, inputs and output actions, you know, an, an information transformation process could, uh, preserve or, 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 you know, not preserve information about the inputs in the action stream. Um, so like literally the mutual information, like if I get formal between the sort of state input and action output is a concept that comes up not infrequently, uh, in various research settings still. Uh, so, so this, though it's, a, though it's like a metaphor, you can formalize mathematically that metaphor and you can use it for things. Yeah,
2: I think, I think a thing that's going to emerge throughout this conversation probably, and it'll then be really ve- relevant when we discuss the third paper, which takes up kind of, from, from a contemporary point of view, the, f- the kind of philosophical value of this whole metaphor, is going to be some type of tension between metaphors that are about communication and metaphors that are about more like immediate action of some kind. And you get it gets. I think for me, it gets into interesting questions about like what is communication. I mean, communication can be conceived of as kinds of action, and then human action often requires communication. But somehow, it just it does seem we. I think for most people, intuitively, communication is has quite special properties. Um,
1: Communicate, yeah, it, it does. But so, like, I mean, the the weakest one one of. I mean, I don't want to be like very formal right now, but the, so one of the weaker definitions of communication, right, would be something just like if if a if a system sends signals that carry information to another system right that's communication right. and it could be inadvertent signals or it could be intentional signals so like if you know at the sensory periphery you have an encoding of some stimulus and then that sensory periphery neuron sends information to the brain it's communicating and if the brain by making arms move or mouths move produces things in the environment that other that that either affect the environment it's communicating with the environment or with other people in the environment or things like this so i mean in in a in a a, just in a purely abstract way you can interpret anything that something does as sending information and in some sense communicating so like actions can be the signal by which communication occurs so I I, I think it's not so hard. I mean, in some ways, the distinction between, in that sense, the distinction between decoding and encoding is actually unclear because decoding, while you interpret it as like turning something from a representation into something that's like an output, like decoding is always just re-coding or like re-encoding into a different, you know, symbol space or something like
2: that. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. That's often, I think, a useful way of thinking like taking the metaphor and kind of stretching it and then noting that it does feel stretched according to your everyday use and then you can, and then like examining the ways in which it feels stretched can be informative, but then also examining the ways in which you start to realize, oh, maybe I can actually, maybe my everyday use is actually kind of compatible with this now at first apparently stretched, yeah, yeah. you know, so it reveals things in both directions. But yeah, there absolutely. is the
0: sense that if you can stretch it so far to explain everything, then how useful is it? And that's why I feel like it feels difficult to talk about this concept because it's the case that you see it everywhere in neuroscience, but in a way, because it's everywhere, it's nowhere. You know, it's like the air of neuroscience.
1: Yeah, but if, I mean, so like the slight pushback on that would be like if at the sensory periphery, people came up with a bunch of math that was sort of useful for communicating this. Like people have math that corresponds to notions about encoding. So it's like if you have signals in the environment and they're encoded, and then you have, you know, you have good math to describe that, uh, or good models to describe that, then if it turns that like, maybe late people would later say, like, oh, that was a bad analogy, we don't want to use it when describing things later in the brain. But if you decide to abandon it, you're also abandoning the utility of that formalism that has been demonstrated in some area. And you might be able to, by stretching it, actually keep using the same old math, and if... I mean that that may be a mistake it, it may turn out that it's just like dumb to to overextend the use of that math but if that if the math keeps helping you as you proceed maybe it's useful that that would be kind of my yeah
0: sure um but yeah so I do think that this um these conference proceedings do a good job of kind of making clear that this is a kind of fuzzy thing and there's a lot of different things that you can mean by coding um, but then they do go into this, uh, this set of four things that um, a code should have.
1: So they, they talk about the referent as the, the referent is the word that refers to the thing like out there in the sort of world, but in, ter- in terms of how it impinges on the sensory apparatus that gets represented. Yeah. They say that there are transformations or encoding processes, which are how the signals or reference are represented by output signals of neurons. Um, And the sort of term that they acknowledge is equivalent, uh, that's like a technical term, would be like transduction. So like signal transduction refers to taking something in the outside world that touches the nervous system and converting it into neural signals. That's signal transduction in this case. And then transmission is how... Those encoded signals are transformed sort of internally, like maybe they're recoded or things like this.
0: Wait, transmission is how they're...
1: This is what they said.
0: Transformed? I thought transformation was how they were transformed.
1: I mean, they're using this... They, they have some specific jargon. I'm just trying to... Maybe I'm... I'm trying to define theirs in the way that they did used it. So they say that, like, I think transformation is like transduction in that it's like the initial transformation from an input signal into like a neural representation um and they they talk about transmission as a distinct term but it re- it's like related to the transformation but it's like how once it's a neural signal it's it's conveyed further and it may involve further transformations or reencodings. Yeah. Uh, in, in the zeder paper they use slightly different uh slightly different terminology so like in the Zader paper which we'll get to later they refer to a distinction between the representation and the computation where what in the in this older paper they're calling transformations they say like i mean in, in the in the more recent paper they refer to those as computations to some extent so there's like a r- initial yeah. representation and then their computations are performed on that represented signal and so that that is a kind of transformation but in, in the older case they have like some specific terminology. I, I think they're just trying to, like, standardize the notation. So transmission isn't necessarily something that is independent from transformation. They indeed say that, like, right, that, that the, tra- the transmission should be discussed in the context of the transformation scheme itself. Sure. Um,
0: and then the, but then the fourth thing yeah. that they say is the interpretation of the transmitted message. That, to me, feels like a computational step as well, yeah. because they say that it's like the, the, the thing that is interpreting the transmitted message is evaluating the incoming information and deciding how to modulate activity in response to it, was the way that they
1: Yeah, it. so, but it's, I think, they're using interpretation broadly, and they do start, they, they say that they don't want to be think of... Uh, the interpretation necessarily as being decoding, which would be like the inverse of encoding, but rather like recoding is would be a kind of interpretation. So like later systems will sort of re-encode the signals from earlier systems. And that's a kind of, it's, it's like a new kind of encoding. And I think there's also discussion of how I mean, I think all of this, it's, it becomes very, it's like very clear in the extreme sensory periphery, like when signals from the environment just start touching the nervous system and get initially transformed. And it obviously gets harder to start using this language when you're getting like closer to motor output or like memory systems or things like this. Um, but those those things get talked about as well. And we, we, can, we can touch on that.
0: Um, and so they say that, that's kind of their formal definition of, of what a code should have. Which We said the referent transformation process, transmission, and interpretation. And then to claim that um, something is a candidate code for being kind of like a neural code that's actually used in a brain, they say it must have those four things and then be observed in biology as useful, which I think is a, an interesting... Thing to tack on there because they don't just mean it's observed in biology but they really mean and it's used by the organism because they give an example where they say that um, there were neurons that were found to encode the wing position of a locust but I don't know the details by which they claim this apparently the locust doesn't use that information they don't I mean perhaps that finding has changed by now because you know sometimes if you do more precise experiments you can see that information is being used by an animal. But their point would be that even if you found kind of all these components of a code in an animal, but it was believed that that information is then not being used, then it doesn't count as a candidate code.
1: So it's, it's not part of like the neural code for that animal in some sense. It's not like the code that the nervous system is actually using or something like that, even if it's incidentally yeah. there.
0: And this actually relates to something that we talked about in our fMRI episode, where there was kind of a concern that people were reading things out from fMRI um, data that you know perhaps you could get information about stimulus or about future action, but it wasn't clear that that was at all you know the information that the brain was using
2: yeah and again that's cool that we like we were talking this about this recently, and those are still critiques that in some situations like in the fMRI thing come up like today I was really impressed by like the scope of this this thing how many things they they kind of touched on, I guess there were.
1: Yeah, I mean, so it's it is impressive, in it's like subtlety and nuance. It like people would want to like look at it and think like, oh, those people were like. I, I think a lot of people now like to look at older scientific literature, especially, and like try to poke at it as, oh, these people were like naive or oversimplifying or not sufficiently circumspect. I mean, they really appreciated that like coding was a metaphor; it was a choice that gave them some utility. And, I mean, they, they even say something like, ex- just to acknowledge that explicitly, moreover, the existence of recurrent or re-entrant pathways makes the numbering of levels ambiguous and muddies further the analogy with simple communication systems. So, like, the fact that as you're encoding progressively in the nervous system, you start having recurrent connectivity, it's like, okay, this is not an easy, you know, there's not an easy analogy with with conventionally engineered communication yeah. systems. Yeah, and
2: this, this reminds me, actually, of something that this uh, uh, an English literature professor at Columbia said to me the other day, in the context of talking about, like, philosophers, which is that it's really easy to come along, right, in this in a situation like this and say, well, people do this sometimes, and be like, oh, and you just kind of dismiss a whole idea or metaphor as, like, clearly not being totally right, right? So it's like, there's recursion yeah. in the thing, so it just isn't analogous to what we really mean, by kind of, information transmission systems, so it's just not, we should just discard it, it's, like, stupid. Because it it's like there's something about like really good thinking that often requires kind of knowing the ways in which you're probably going to be wrong, but like trying anyway. Do you know what I mean? And like,
1: and and choosing the simplification, like with knowledge of its shortcomings yeah, then, like, or limitations, but choosing it, yeah, it because it's, it's still useful. It carries some value. Yeah. Potentially, yeah, this, a lot
2: this of paper that really, like, st- really was doing that balance in a way that I found like very appealing. It was really nice. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: I don't know how I feel. Like, yeah, when I read it, I was like, yeah, like, I like this thing. Um, But then to think that it was written so long ago, I don't know if that makes me feel great. (laughs) It makes it seem like, you know, the same issues have always been around and they're still not maybe being explicitly addressed. I don't know. The fact that the fMRI critique still comes up seems like, well, if we knew this a long time ago, we shouldn't just take whatever um, the experimenter uses as a decoder and say that that's what the brain is doing.
2: Yeah, I also think that's really interesting because it's like, you know, um, there's questions of like the, the sometimes fallacious way that we think about knowledge as accruing, right, or accumulating. I mean, may, you know, there can be like weird things where it's like uh, upon first, like, okay, there's lots of different ways of looking at it. But you could look at it. You could. You could. Um, the thing that I was just talking about, an individual doing, right? You could look at it as also being as being part of how a field progresses. Like maybe the field had to. This is a generous, positive way of looking at it. Maybe the field had to forget its early hesitations for a while, <laughs> build up like data, and maybe like now is the right time to go back and be like, oh, okay. Actually the people who maybe you're maybe you're more likely the, the first time you start like when you're the first person who's laying out a metaphor, seriously, like maybe you're more likely to if you're circumspect, to actually go through and do all the philosophizing and be like, mm, actually this problem and that problem. So like, you know, there's a kind of there's a potential lesson which is that there can be a lot there can be a lot to be learned by going back and looking at the really smart people who came up with the ideas initially, but who don't have all of the benefit of yes, what has happened yeah, yeah. since. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And then reutilizing their ideas.
1: Because uh, uh, implicit in, in your point, right, is that like as people for the last fifty years or whatever have continued to use this metaphor, you have grad students and professors and scientists who maybe don't examine this initial this like the early right. literature on this. And just kind of accept, like at a very superficial level, that this metaphor, the mathematics that accompany this metaphor is the right way of approaching the problem, Uh, but like kind of more unthinkingly or, or like with less circumspection than the original people who proposed it have. And so for those people, it's a different game. It's a game of like how far can you play inside this analogy or this metaphor than it is of what is the right way of interpreting the system. Like, it's a local game where it's like, I want to push the math and the tools as far as they can go within this metaphor without stepping outside of that, I guess we can use the word paradigm very colloquially.
0: Another um, area that this article touched on that is kind of a similar thing, they talk about, you know, if you find uh, one of these candidate codes in the the neural data, um you can then ask, why is that the code that's used? Um, you know, What about the system and its constraints have led to that being the code that's used? And maybe you know, it's not a great or a perfect code by some definition, um, but it's the one that's there because it's good enough for the job and then given the constraints of the, the nervous system or something like that. And I feel like that's another thing that it's kind of, there's a, a condensed way to just say, well, presumably the brain is doing something optimal. And we're going to figure out, like, the angle by which it's doing something optimal. And I think, like, that's the, you know, the the condensed thing that's been passed through the times, you know, through generations of neuroscientists with just kind of having that assumption in the background, whereas this points to, like, well, you know, there's going to be a reason or, you know, a set of reasons why this is the way it is, um, but they can be due to a lot of different forces.
1: So then there's another interesting section later. Um, Those slow me down if I'm jumping too far ahead. That that asks so like when you've got lots of information and it's encoded and there's you know many different neurons that are as a as a population doing some sort of representation of a lot of stuff in the stimulus. They say something like who reads the ensemble codes, um, which I think you know anticipates this sort of other kind of part of the question, which is if you've represented something thoroughly in a distributed population of neurons. Like, what do you do with that? Um, and so they have a few, uh, a few possibilities. Like, they try to enumerate non-comprehensively uh, the space of possibilities. So one is that there is a pontifical decision-making neuron. The next is that the, there's no decision made by neurons at all, but rather by the muscles and the joints. So, that, I mean, or a weaker, like slightly summarized version or paraphrased version of that would be like a bunch of neurons propel essentially what amounts to be the the decision all the way to the effector periphery so like where where the, the, the muscles actually are actuated. It could be the neurons right before them or something like this um, but or the synapses directly onto the muscles or like when the decision is made um, uh, The next option is that it's a relatively large population of neurons acting as a unit um, or the fourth one that they acknowledge is that it's some combination of the first and the third. So like some combination of one neuron that's a pontifical decision-making neuron versus a bunch of neurons acting as a unit. Um, and so I, I thought this was this was kind of interesting. It doesn't necessarily answer much, but it, it, it gives an insight into, again, how the question can be broken down and like the, the perspective that they were coming at it from, which is you've got this representation. It gets transformed many times, changing from one kind of language to another as it passes through this this. Communication pathway of the brain, and then you've got to have something that reads it out, and the thing that reads it out, which is doing something like decoding, is the thing that produces the action, or the small subset of neurons, for example, which interprets uh, that representation in order to enable decision making. Um, and I think that overall, that sort of philosophical framework is basically what people are con- right now still using, like within neuroscience proper, that seems like the way people think about what a brain does. You get this encoding into a representation, and then you have to interpret that representation with a different subset of neurons, which essentially make decisions in quotes, where decision is sort of technically defined as the the way you produce actions based on representations. In In a way,
0: though, the option out of those three that is most appealing to me is like the the muscle option in a way.
1: So the number two, the decision is not made by neurons at all, but by muscles and joints themselves.
0: Yeah. And that's essentially saying that we don't have to ever talk about a decision. It's just, this is a physical system where physical things impact neurons on one end that impact other neurons that impact other neurons that impact other neurons probably a few more times. And then those neurons impact a muscle. And that's, I mean, because so in the uh, beginning of, of this um, proceedings They say like You know the liver processes chemicals and the brain processes information. And that's like a crazy thing to say because the liver processing chemicals <laughs> is like a fully physical thing that makes sense. Every other organ of the body we define in fully physical terms. But then we get to the brain like, well, the brain process in- processes information. It's like, that's crazy.
1: I mean, it's interesting. It's a crazy
0: jump to make. Like, it's a, like to you should ignore, like, I agree that the brain processes information, but it's a hugely different way to try to understand I mean, a it, biological. It, it, yeah, origin.
1: it's one like of those... I guess. Yeah,
2: it's one of those cases where it feels like the sentence structure is very <laughs> similar, but it allows you to kind of highlight like a huge difference between you know two nouns, like uh, information versus chemical, <laughs> chemical,
1: or, or, or well. But I think maybe the reason they're using the abstraction. So the the end of this article includes an appendix that like enumerates at many different levels within the brain, like EEG. Single cell physiology, synapses—you know the way neurons are communicating, uh, like the kinds of representations that might exist. And I think part of what they're doing is like if if, if you said yeah. the 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 brain is the organ which processes electrical signals, like you wouldn't be totally right because there's also chemical signals. And so, like you basically have to say the brain is the organ that processes signals, and you've already made that elision there you're no longer talking about something physical because what's they're trying to say to some extent in it is a weird thing to say is that the brain is processing not any particular signal but as one signal gets transformed or transduced from a signal category into another from a chemical to electrical signal or, or whatever uh, or, or a, a you know a peripheral kind of an energy that impinges upon the sensory periphery into the electrical signals of the nervous system, that's what the brain's processing. It's processing that abstraction that is the same thing, in in some sense, across all of those uh, transformations, whether it's chemical or electrical, or chemical to electrical to chemical to electrical. Uh, it's, it's processing that stuff, and it's not physical stuff. It's the stuff.
0: It is physical stuff. Well, it, it, oh, it, it's, it's of, of course physical physical
1: physical, there's a physical component. There's a physical but basis it, to it. There's yeah, but so it, it, it there is something weird going on philosophically where it's it's not it's it is the physical stuff that's being processed. Um, but like the in some ways it is accurate. I think the easiest way to describe the similarity there is that it's the the, the thing the human abstraction of it's the information.
2: Yeah, I mean th- there's always this is there's always this thing. Where, I mean this is a, com- a common thing I think w- which is um when trying to describe systems y- in science or in you know, trying to construct understanding in general, I think there's a tension between kind of where you make where you where you make impositions, um but then also like in particular um something about like levels of continuity or graininess and stuff uh, that you kind of impose. So like You can think of organisms as totally continuous with their environment for example like you can just think of people as like very complicated versions of like rocks or you know like just like there's stuff they're just like there's a bunch of stuff right that kind of is a weird a very weird part of the environment or something right but that you know or you can think of them as like very discrete entities with souls or something i don't know what the other extreme is um and then you can think of the brain as like at very physical levels or you can think of it at like some kind of middle kind of continuous dynamic inter-informational level or you can think of it in much more um, much more modular levels I'm, like, I'm not sure if modular Like at a psychological exactly, scale think, you can, you At can a think psychological even, scale yeah yeah. yeah yeah, or like you know, but like in particular in terms of like or like some kind of psychoanalytic scale like there are a thing that has desires and it has like memories and it has or whatever or you could say there's a thing that has like internal models and, and so on and what the hell was my point?
1: I mean, in some sense, all of those are like valid perspectives, depending on what you're right. trying to say about the system. Is, is maybe
2: oh yeah, the thing I wanted to say because this actually is really analogous to something I was thinking about earlier. I was reading, I was reading someone talking about history and how you do how you do history, right? And there's this thing in history, but there's like this. I think this is relevant. There's this uh, distinction between like diachronic views of social processes versus synchronic views, and so the idea would be is like a synchronic view is where you take many um, you you chunk up you get a bit of time and you kind of like get rid of time out of it so you might look at a culture over a, 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 say a 20 year period but you sort of forget time uh, you, you, you neglect change basically and you try to understand what are the rel- what are the best categories I can come up with for understanding this culture in this period and then but then there's this kind of tension where like you actually also kind of want to understand change and so somehow you're kind of messing yourself up if you do that move. The guy was just making this point which is kind of obvious when you've made it, but I, I found it very helpful. And I think it's related to a, a similar thing here which is like you kind of have to like you know alternate like you kinda have to do Siebel both sides. Yeah. You have Siebel to try to like side. find the right mm-hmm. s- levels of description to then to then see how the change happens. Um so the change is like which how you describe change will depend on the level of description that you've kind of um, found is most relevant at a particular moment for describing something. So here it's kind of like the relevant chunking kind of depends on on like h- how well it ends up helping you to describe things. And that's not exactly how the analogy is meant to go. Shit, I had a much better version of that <laughs> analogy in my head. <laughs> Fuck.
0: But so there, this idea that you can look at the same thing from different angles or you know, different frameworks and stuff, Um, There was a good point brought up in the third paper, um, like the question of would you say that heart rate is encoding walking speed because there is a correlation between that. And you could claim that like the heart is sending information to the cells about certain properties, you know, about how much cardiovascular exertion is happening at a time because like blood pressure is going to be... The, the pressure of the blood carries information about things, you know. You can make those claims and I think it would be difficult to understand the heart if that were the framework that people were using. And I understand why the information framework makes more sense for the brain, but it is putting forth a fundamentally different task. And I think that's why it gets hazy and weird because ultimately the brain is just a physical thing. And you could explain everything about the brain by just knowing the way neurons connected and and their activity. You could predict behavior if you had that information. I think the value in having the coding metaphor is because we can't observe a lot of the middle stuff that happens and we need a foothold in the middle of the, the processing chain to say to, to connect things so that we, we can have some people that study sensory stuff and they can say, oh, well, the information gets encoded in this kind of way. And then we can have other people who study decision making and then motor output and they can, you know, pass along findings to each other in this encoding framework um, because we can't actually observe all of the direct uh, connections that are made in the brain.
2: It's funny, the decision thing, I was just thinking, because you were saying before, you mentioned decision, and then you were saying before, like you kind of like the idea of this this idea of like decision happening at the muscles or something. I wonder, could you have a notion of decision that's like, where a decision is a, is a moment where you, where some system, somehow, and it's, you can talk about choice when it's a person, that's easy, but like, if it's not a person it becomes unclear, but like, where a system kind of throws away stuff, like Forecloses a bunch of possibilities that were up until that point open to it. You know what I mean? And if you think of because that's kind of like you know you pick one of three options, right? You've you've committed. You take one, and then you can no longer pick the other two. You can imagine things like that that also happen at various levels inside the brain. You know what I mean? Like moments of discarding things. Um, I just wonder if that's a useful concept for bringing the decision back in. Like
0: it would still though be within like this you would be looking for cells that encode the decision that was made and you know represent the information that was then passed on to the motor system or something like that it's still within this framework of thinking about things as encoding yeah. that my the appeal of the muscle, Idea to me, the muscle being the endpoint is that you don't even have to talk about decision making. You just say there was this chain of physical I, I events. Think
1: it's A little more complicated than that, though, but I think I think what's happening as I mean, if if I try to to be a bit more unified in the perspective on encoding, re-representation, and decision making, really kind of all being going on similarly, right? If, if if we're thinking about decoding the decoding or interpreting process as if we if we use their language explicitly as like analogous with the way integration is used colloquially within neuroscience, uh, the idea would be you're integrating information from uh, from from inputs, and the recodings often in order to abstract over timescale or over modality. So like you know if you've got something from vision and then you're combining it with something from your auditory uh, system, right? you're integrating information from multiple modalities and then you're integrating information over time and you build your sort of perceptual representations by integrating information over your different modalities and over time. And the decisions involve, uh, uh, you know, outcomes about how you're going to send information to the muscles uh, that arise, arise from integrating various you know, perceptual information with memory based information with, you know, kind of information about your motivations and drives. And so like, this process of integrating is part of the information recoding and decoding that goes on. And it's a lot more blurry. It's not like there's a you never have to talk about decoding, but you do have to talk about re-representation that involves integrating. And they basically said that integrating is what they mean by interpreting. So
2: I'm kind of I'm a little bit fixated on this idea now, though I had I had of decisions as about moments of of like discard discarding or foreclosing possibility. Because when you speak about it although of course that could also just be complete it could be a very continuous process, right? But what you just talked about is there's all this information kind of coming in and you're combining it over time and over uh, modalities and so forth. And like, I don't know if that's what you meant, but it it eventually leads to like behavior or it kind of is continuously leading to behavior.
1: It's continuously leading to behavior, right? right? Yeah.
2: Um, Yeah. So so there has to, it was like representation to me has this very kind of, it definitely as a word has a one-to-one type connotation. Like, and kind of, a, and we talked about this earlier, like a, a lossless connotation, and that's why it feels so appealing at the, yeah, yeah. At the sensory yeah, periphery. Yeah, do you yeah. know what yeah. I mean? Because you do kind of think it. I mean, this is actually not true. We already know that actually, at the sensory periphery, neurons already are actually discarding information, throwing away a lot of information. Right. Yeah. So, so, so there's something about that the, the word representation has that vibe to it, It's the non-throwy away vibe. The decision word to me has a very throwy away vibe, and so maybe there's a way, you know, a way of thinking about it as more kind of like a continuous process of like bringing in and getting rid of and then just kind of these extremes of like the actual world and maybe the first order impingement of the world on your sensory apparatus and then there's the other extreme which is like the very punctate things you do which are like highly specific given all the things you could have done with the information
0: it still feels Mm -hmm. like this is all a continuum the sensory encoding and the decision making are all just transformations of information they just maybe have well, slightly I mean, different. qualities. Well, I mean, one way to think
1: about them is that yeah, I mean, they're transformation of signals of various different sorts, which are physically, you know, instantiated. Yeah. and I've, we can think about that <laughs>
0: as. Yeah. I've just jumped back to the to the encoding uh, level. I'm allowing the okay. discussion of the brain as an information processing system. Mm-hmm. <laughs> i to be on record as saying ultimately it is weird, but because <laughs> it is just a physical thing. But I understand why we talk about it that way so we can continue to talk about it that way um but yeah so it just the the whole process is a series of essentially the same kind of thing transforming the information and maybe sometimes just sending it in like the the lossless way that we think about or like more on the lossless side but at every point it's it's the recoding even when it gets to the muscle
2: but then when you do something when you actually move, it's kind of, that becomes weird. I mean, I think you can talk about, like Josh kind of talked about this earlier. Like you could try to also talk about that as kind of information. You couldn't think of the whole world as an information system. Do you know what I mean? Um, but like when you, when, I think that you, you can probably do that. And in some
1: ways I, you probably kind of have to, if, if you're, if you're going to say that the brain is an information processing machine, then you have to talk about the inputs to it as already being information. Otherwise you don't have like, you know, there's something, there's something missing, right? Yeah. The signals in the environment Unless you're view, I mean, there's a complex philosophy about like information only existing when it's being interpreted by something or something like that. Yeah, you
2: could have information being some, yeah, being something that ha- it could end up being related to like minds or agents or something. But
1: I mean, in some very literal sense, the signal already contains the information. Uh, again, this is this is like this is hairy philosophy, right? But like by the time it impinges upon the nervous system, obviously, like the signal itself. Contains that like physical entropy that gets you know transduced into interpreted information um, by the nervous system.
0: We can try to talk more specifically about what the neural code could be uh, based on that next article. That kind of sums up um, the more current state of the field. <laughs> Hey, if you're still listening to this, you must really like us. So how about you go to iTunes or Stitcher and rate the podcast, give us some feedback. You can also go to our website, unsupervisedthinkingpodcast.blogspot.com. You can comment on different episodes, or you could give us ideas for new topics you want to hear about. We would love to hear from you. Thanks.